Another packed week of political news, including some huge news coming down just this morning. To talk about all that and more on the panel this morning, Global BC's Keith Baldry, the Vancouver Sun's Vaughn Palmer, and BC Today's Shannon Waters. We're also going to talk marijuana with BC's Public Safety Minister, Mike Farnley. For Kamloops Computer Center, this is Inside Politics with Radio NL News Director Shane Woodford. Good morning and welcome. It's an overcast, uh, wet day here in Kamloops, so the day getting off to quite a spectacular start. We'll dive into that uh, right off the top. Uh, pleasure to welcome Keith, Vaughn, and Shannon. Uh, how's everybody doing? Very good, Shane. Excellent. Uh, guys, this morning uh, we all were aware of the recent court ruling that threw the Trans Mountain Pipeline into limbo while wondering what the federal government would do next. Uh, this morning we saw step one in that process. The National Energy Board will restart its review of the pipeline. It's got 22 weeks to consider uh, the issues the court uh, tabled, including offshore impacts, the killer whales, First Nations consultations. Uh, so it looks like we have the beginning of a roadmap to get the pipeline built. Uh, Keith, uh, what do you sort of read into the news that we were, we're just digesting now? Well, it confirms what we were talking about for the last few weeks is that the government's not going to be appealing that decision, it looks like. Uh, it's going to refer the matter back to the National Energy Board. It's got a tight timeline, 22 weeks. Uh, the court judgment uh, at the Federal Court of Appeal did indicate that it was it would accept a, a, a short time frame here, a short timeline, and indeed that's what uh, the federal government has, uh, has instructed the NEB to uh, to uh, to do the one thing we don't know uh, yet is what's going to happen on the consultation with First Nations. That's the other task that the Federal Court of Appeals said the government fell short of. So the, the NEB instructions take care of the marine safety aspect, or at least try to take care of it. But uh, the process of in the consulting and accommodating First Nations interests is is the other shoe that has yet to drop. Yeah, and uh, Emergy. So he's saying this morning that uh, he will have an announcement to come, quote unquote, shortly, and how the federal government will address that issue. Uh, Vaughn, what stood out to you about this first step from the from the government? Okay. Uh, apparently we're waiting for Vaughn to join us. Uh, Shannon, we'll go to you. Uh, what do you what do you expect comes on the on the First Nations consultation front? I note uh, Emerjeet so he's saying that in the energy board review process as it restarts, uh, they will open up for input from that side. So maybe that's part of it. Well and I've heard that they're apparently looking at trying to get a federal judge, potentially a retired federal judge, I should say, on board for the First Nations consultation side of things to ensure that they get things right. Um, so that could be an interesting um, factor, having someone you know who's very familiar with the law, the court ordered requirements there, um, whether or not that does result in sort of a more engaged and authentic process and whether First Nations feel that it does actually improve things, I think at this point is anybody's guess. But um, yeah, we're still waiting to see what Ottawa is going to do on that front. Yeah, on the offshore marine stuff, uh, one of the bigger issues was, I mean, yeah, we're going to get some more uh, oil tanker traffic from Trans Mountain, but uh, as been pointed out uh, by a lot of people, uh, including Ross Ellis up north, the BC Liberal MLA. There is a ton of oil tanker traffic and other tankers and BC, all of the stuff flowing through. And I was I was struck by a comment from uh, the Department of Fisheries and Oceans Minister Jonathan Wilkinson this morning. I'll just play that really quickly now. The issue around the South Resident Killer Whale and the, and the, and the plight of the, of the killer whale doesn't relate directly to this project alone. It relates to the lack of availability of Chinook salmon. It relates to the contaminants that exist in the water. And it relates to all of the marine shipping that, that happens in, in the Burrard Inlet and the Salish Sea, which is 3,200 large container ships and, fair, and, and cruise ships. 
thousands of BC ferries, tens of thousands of recreational boats. And if you're going to address the issues of the South Resident Killer Whale, you need to address the acoustic disturbance from all of those in a comprehensive way. Six more oil tankers a week is something that is important to mitigate, but this is a far bigger issue. Yeah, a far bigger issue, and one wonders how they're going to tackle all of that. Uh, Keith? Well, yeah, his comments, I think, raise a point that are lost on a lot of people. There are something like 23,000 ship movements in the Salish Sea every year. And that's that's quite apart from pleasure craft. That is BC ferries, container ships, which basically bring you 90% of everything you own, wear, eat, or, or and consume comes through a container ship. Uh, so it's a massive amount of marine traffic that takes place quite apart from the Trans Mountain uh, Pipeline Project. So I think it's a real misread and misnomer to think that uh, that banning uh, Trans Mountain, uh, an expansion of Trans Mountain tankers is suddenly going to free the killer whales and the orcas. No, they, they are facing far bigger challenges than, than this particular marine project. And I hope, you know, more work is done to, to alleviate or, or, or sort of the challenges that come to saving the orca population, but they are facing some serious problems, and they have nothing to do with the Trans Mountain uh, Pipeline project. Uh, Vaughn, uh, you've joined us now. Uh, what did you read into this morning's uh, news from, from Ottawa as far as uh, the beginning of a roadmap to get the Trans Mountain Pipeline built? Uh, I think they read the court decision very, very carefully, and they took the two signals that the Federal Court of Appeal gave. The Federal Court of Appeal said they could uh, get the issue revisited by the National Energy Board on a tight timeline. 22 weeks is tight, and it looks to me as if they're also going to take the direction for a, uh, a focused engagement with First Nations. So not going back to square one, not to... You know, sky's the limit, a horizon review, but focus on the issues that they fell down on in the final phase last time. So the government's going to have another go at it. They've taken, as I said, the strong hints from the Federal Court of Appeal that this thing can still get approval. And, uh, you know, if you again, if the court meant what it said, this may well pass the test. Yeah. Uh, final word to you on, on Trans Mountain, Shannon. Uh, Mike Farnworth is on the line. We're going to get to him after commercial break. But uh, as we look on, on, on forging ahead with the pipeline, and, and especially on the offshore conditions, the Trudeau government has taken some action on offshore marine protections. It's got that $1.5 billion marine protection plan. All of that's going to be sort of resubmitted to the National Energy Board. I guess the question of the day is, uh, how will that impact whatever it's reassessment of this particular project is and then you know what will the government see will it be a yay or nay although i assume it's going to go more one way than the other it definitely sounds like the government wants to get to yes on this um the prime minister did an interview with mclean's this week where he basically said we absolutely want to get this done and we don't even care if we lose a bunch of money on it because we need this pipeline. We need to be able to get our oil to markets other than the Americans. So I guess like my, as Vaughn points out, 22 weeks is a very tight timeline. And there's a saying when it comes to projects that you can do things well, you can do things quickly, but you can rarely do them both sort of at the same time. And so I do wonder how this review is going to go in that it is being done so fast. And it's it's a complicated issue, especially if they are looking at, you know, potentially trying to address impacts on a southern resident killer whale. Whether that's going to be enough to save that population, I think, is a is a open question. And, and there are a lot of other factors there. But it's going to be interesting to see 
also, I think, how they can sort of sell this to individuals who are concerned about the impacts of marine traffic and, and make people believe that they are doing a thorough and fair assessment of the impacts and drawing up an effective plan to offset them. Yeah, and then you throw in the First Nations issue. It's going to be interesting. Okay, guys, we're, exactly. going, to take, we're going to take an early commercial break. Shannon, uh, we'll get you to drop off, and we'll pick you up at the bottom of the hour in order to get Mike Farnworth on the line, who's standing by. Vaughn and Keith will hang out. Uh, and we'll take a quick commercial break here on Inside Politics, and we'll have Public Safety Minister Mike Farnworth joining us next to talk legal marijuana and more. Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local news now. Listening to Inside Politics with Shane Woodford for Kamloops Computer Center on Radio NL. Good morning. Time to talk legal marijuana. We're just uh, a month less a day out from uh, legal marijuana being the uh, dominant new process across this country. It's going to be a huge policy shift. Uh, joining me now to talk about that is BC's Public Safety Minister Mike Farnworth. Mike, how are you? Good. And uh, Vaughn Palmer and uh, Keith Baldry are also on the line as well. Uh, Mike, uh, you made some news this week about uh, your concerns at the border with people who work in the legal cannabis industry, be they government or private, uh, and potential issues at the border there. We have had one case already with someone who is an investor uh, who has turned back and issued a lifetime ban simply for investing in marijuana stock. So the border remains a pretty big question mark as we hit this deadline next month. Uh, with that in mind, have you heard anything in the days since you've uh, you've gone to the media and said, listen, I'm concerned about this. Have you heard anything back uh, from the federal government or otherwise that gives you any amount of reassurance uh, that there'll be some kind of, I don't know, uh, some kind of steadfast approach at the border concerning uh, concerning people who work in the legal cannabis industry? I haven't heard anything uh, specific. Um, I know that other provinces are also concerned. Uh, my understanding is I think that there has been a communication between uh, all of the provinces now uh, um, with the, uh, the federal government that uh, they're concerned uh, about this issue. I know the federal government is aware of it. Um, it does come in, you know, it's completely under federal government jurisdiction. BC is a subnational jurisdiction. We don't have the ability to say, you know, uh, we need to do this or we need to do that um, and do it. Uh, but we're looking, also looking at it from the, the perspective of, okay, are there things that we can do within house in terms of trying to mitigate things, or make at least make people aware of, of the uh, the issue uh, that we that we see at the border. It was interesting to note that yesterday there was a uh, an article uh, that I read uh, about a congressperson uh, down in California saying that. Uh, the, uh, the U.S. federal government really should address this issue, that they see it as a potential, uh, they see it as a problem as well. Uh, so, um, you, you know, this is, a, this is an important issue, and I think the federal government is aware of it, and they now need to take it seriously and, and see what we can do in terms of ensuring that whoever uh, is working, whoever is engaged in a legal activity in this, in this country uh, is not going to face consequences at the, uh, the U.S. border. Yeah, no, I agree. Uh, I'm, I am curious about one thing. You're setting up this whole new regime essentially from scratch. You've been hard at work doing that for months now. Uh, as we look at this border issue, are you concerned, Mike, uh, you, as far as the government liquor stores are concerned? There's going to be one in Kamloops on the 17th, but you haven't set any up after that, and you're going to have to. Are you concerned that potential employees or even people within the LDB who are looking to move from liquor to cannabis will look at the border issue and say, oh, no thanks, I don't, I don't think I want to do that? Um, we've had a lot of interest uh, from people uh, wanting to uh, to be employed. There was a lot of people um, lined up uh, to to work in the Camelot store, and we're working in terms of looking at okay, 
Um, are there things that we can do provincially to make sure to minimize uh, any risk? At the same time, letting the feds know, look, this is an issue that we need to have addressed, uh, and they need to they need to get on this. Uh, Vaughn, you want to ring in? Yeah, I want to say that uh, Mike Farmer, there's no substitute for Shannon Waters. <laughs> seriously, uh, Minister, this was one line in the federal liberal election platform, and its implications continue to ripple uh, across the country. Uh, do you think that Ottawa really gave enough thought to this question of the impact on getting back and forth across the border? I think this is... Uh when this whole issue of the legalization came up, I, I don't think anybody fully, truly understood where the tentacles of this octopus, as someone described it to me, uh, reached. Uh, because just in my own experience, in terms of having been given this file, where it spreads and where it goes, and all the different avenues and alleys and sideways that you go down, and all the issues you got to deal with, I don't think the border issue was one uh, that uh, really that really uh, people thought about. Um, it is, as they say, um, an unintended consequence, um, or as what was it Donald Rumsfeld once said, we have the we have the uh, the known knowns, the unknown knowns, the unknown unknowns, and um, this I think is an example of that. Keith, thank you. Yeah, uh, just again for the minister, what um, what steps are being taken internally in the government, within government, to either obscure or or sort of cloak the fact that uh, employees are working in the cannabis uh, section, so border guards don't Google someone's name, and up pops uh, assistant, uh, you know, deputy manager for liquor distribution branch cannabis section. We are looking at uh, a number of ways in which we can ensure uh, that uh, that we can minimize any risk um, if uh, if this is if this is a problem. Um, I can't go into into detail. All I can tell you at this point is is that the ministry is aware of it. We are looking at at, at what measures that we can take uh, in terms of our jurisdiction, and at the same time letting the feds know this is a problem and they need to make sure. Uh, that they address it. Mike, are you worried about hitting the border yourself? I mean, if they if you hit the border and someone says, what do you do? And uh, they eventually say, so are you the guy that brought it or is working to bring in marijuana in the province? Do you feel that you yourself are at risk or no? Um, let's put it this way. I, 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 I hope that common sense prevails. I hope that common sense prevails. I know the feds are, are, are aware of it. Um, we're looking uh, very closely, working uh, on this issue at, at, at how to deal with it, and I think um, people just need to be—they uh, just need to be careful and aware when they go to the border. And it, it, it applies on a whole range of levels. I mean, this isn't just about government employees; it's about private sector employees. It's, uh, it's about private businesses who aren't even related to cannabis. It's, it's literally about anybody when they're going across the border. It will be legal in this country to consume, use marijuana work in that industry. It's legal in Washington State, Colorado, and Oregon, and an increasing number of U.S. states. Um, people just need to, be, uh, they need to be very much aware of at that border on how you answer uh, questions that you are asked. And it could be just as simple as, you know, I mean, people need to understand that if there's cannabis, a cannabis wrapper, if there's, a, you know, smoke or a hint of smoke in the car, you can get asked questions, and then the U.S. border guards have a lot of power, and they make a decision, and that's it. 
Uh, on as far as impaired or drug impaired drivers, Mike, uh, here in Kamloops, the detachment's going to take a pass on uh, using the Dreger drug test 5000, which is a ridiculous name, by the way. Uh, and I note a lot of other police detachments across the country are also taking a pass. Uh, it, as far as you're concerned, do you endorse this device or, or do you advise the police departments to sort of stay away from it? What we want to see is uh, technology in use uh, that will stand up to court challenges. We're told by the federal government uh, that, this, that this will, that this is, uh, you know, technology that they have confidence in. Um, British Columbia, along with every other province, has expressed real concerns about the amount of time it's taken uh, in terms of getting the technology. We've been very concerned about, you know, reliability issues. Uh, we know that there's going to be a, uh, from the moment it's first, the first time it's used, wherever it is, whether it's BC or somewhere else in this country, there will be a court challenge. Um, the one thing that we have always known and, and have been clear on is, is that whatever technology is used, um, if there's a court challenge or there's issues around it, the standard field sobriety test is still something that, that is in place. Uh, and that that is something that the police can use, and they use it right now in terms of trying to determine drug impaired. Uh, so, so this again, this is one of those issues that is going to it's going to resolve itself over time. Uh, we're doing everything we can to make sure that officers are trained on the technology. Um, this is, but I, I fully expect that uh, you're going to see advances, just like we saw when drinking and driving technology. Uh, you know, the, the breathalyzer test was first introduced. It's evolved over time, and you're going to see the same thing, the same thing with this. Uh, but again, this just illustrates the tight timeline under which legalization has taken place, not just here in BC, but right across the country. And in fact, this issue of the drinking and driving technology and the legislation around it was, you know, the last piece to actually get through the Senate um, back in back in June. Vaughn. Yeah, I, uh, well, I, I like what the, the minister said a little earlier about uh, the unintended consequences of this change. I can't think of a public policy change in a country that, as I said, taken on the basis of just a line in an election platform that's got so many far-reaching implications, and we're still sorting it out. Uh, I like what the minister said when the local government said we'd like a split of the revenues, and the answer back from the finance minister and uh, solicitor general was, are you so sure there will be any? It's going to mm. cost so much to implement this. But I do want to ask the minister, has he asked the premier to stop referring to him as the cannabis czar? He's <laughs> the border <laughs> officials Google that. <laughs> <laughs> well, cannabis czar is better than the uh, ganja guy, <laughs> <laughs> or some of the other some of the other uh, uh, um, names that uh, on this file that I have been given. <laughs> uh, last question to you, Keith. I want to know from the minister if he's going to uh, dub his um, enforcement branch the Untouchables. <laughs> Uh, as a reminder of the Prohibition era, when it comes to cracking down on uh, these dispensaries that exist right now that will not qualify for licenses under the new regime, what type of time frame, I mean, joking aside, what type of time frame are we talking about in, uh, in, in requiring these, uh, these unlicensed dispensaries that exist right now to go out of business? Well, we're looking, first off, in terms of the enforcement unit, uh, that's currently under development, um, and uh, that'll, there'll be about, it'll, it'll comprise about 44 uh, people. Uh, it'll be spread around the province, and mm -hmm. its job will be to deal with um, those dispensaries that are illegal, that don't get 
um, you know, local government approval and then uh, pass a, a background check. Um, as we've made clear, existing dispensaries are able to apply. The issue is very much sort of focused in the Vancouver uh, and Victoria uh, communities, as, as well as a few others, but nowhere near to, the, to, that, to that extent. I'm expecting that enforcement, and I've, made it, and I've said this before, enforcement is going to ramp up over time. So you're not going to see on October 18th, you know, a whole bunch of uh, people marching around and marching into legal dispensaries. As more and more legal uh, licensed uh, retail outlets come online, uh, then enforcement will be ramped up. Perfect. Mike, uh, thanks so much for taking some time to join us this morning. Appreciate it. My pleasure. There we go. Public Safety Minister Mike Farnworth talking about legal pot uh, coming our way a month less a day from today. Uh, Keith and Vaughn are going to hang on the line and we'll reach out and get Shannon Waters back on the line and the panel will rejoin us after this break and news to the bottom of the hour. Local News Now, Radio NL, 610 AM and RadioNL.com. For Kamloops Computer Center, you're listening to Inside Politics on Radio NL. Once again, here's Shane Woodford. Good morning. Welcome back. We got the full panel back, uh, Keith Vaughn and Shannon. Interesting stuff from Mike Farnworth. I note he danced around some specific uh, information on some questions uh, concerning legal marijuana. I was really interested to hear about the 44 enforcement officers, uh, Shannon. I thought to myself, you know, BC is a big place and 44 is probably not going to cut it. Yes, I was somewhat surprised by that number as well. I mean, we, we had heard that it was likely going to be, you know, a fairly small force. I would imagine they're going to be concentrated in, you know, some of the areas that are likely to be more problematic when it comes to legalization, potentially Vancouver, Victoria, some of the communities that have been permissive about having cannabis dispensaries, which I guess we're going to have to get used to calling them something else because they're not allowed to call themselves dispensaries anymore once they become legal. Yeah, that's true. Keith, I also was struck by how uh, Mr. Farnworth kind of chose his words very carefully uh, when he responded to your question about efforts to perhaps cloak the uh, identities of people working in the cannabis industry so border guards couldn't Google them. He definitely got a sense something was up there. Yeah, something is up there. I've, I've been talking to some government employees uh, who, uh, the BCG has flagged this uh, early on, that this was a concern. And I wonder whether they're even going to scrub the word cannabis from uh, all government uh, files. I'm not sure that might meet uh, the requirements of uh, the privacy commissioner, who may say, no, you have to be completely open and transparent about what government does. But I think they are in a, it's a bit of a pickle that uh, how do you, how do you uh, protect the rights of someone who's actually engaged in illegal activity, which is, you know, cannabis will be legal as of October 17th. And and Farmworth has has flagged the border issue early on for months now. He's been, I I talked to him quite a bit about this issue, and he keeps saying that, you know, people keep focusing on, rightly so, on impaired driving, on on, uh, licensing, on production, but he says the one big area nobody has their heads wrapped around yet is the border, because it will be, cannabis will be legal in British Columbia, it will be legal in Washington State, but it will not be legal in the tiny little area that separates the two the two jurisdictions, which is the international border. Cannabis will not be legal at the border, and that gives the the uh, the uh, immigration and customs officers in the United States 
tremendous leeway, not that they need any leeway anyway, so they can do anything they want, uh, yeah. <laughs> to basically refuse entry to all sorts of uh, British Columbians, uh, whether they work in cannabis, private, public, or whether they consume uh, cannabis in, the, in their previous uh, years. Yeah, I, I honestly thought the border would be a problem, but I was looking at it more from the view of, you know, if you have a marijuana conviction or you say something, I'm going down to Washington State to, to check out your marijuana compared to ours that you run into trouble. I didn't expect them to be so voracious about, you know, people who invest in marijuana, people who work in the cannabis industry. It really seems they've gone an extra step. And quite frankly, I'm not sure even if Ottawa is willing to call up Washington that uh, the other side of the phone is, is really going to do much to help them out, Vaughn. Uh, I think you're quite right. In fact, the statements from the Americans all indicate they are going to uh, be quite pushy on this and crack down on it. And, and if they do, yeah, there's a huge problem with this, you're, the, the problem of being a landlord or working in the industry, the problem of um, going through pre, pre-clearance at the airport for your Hawaiian vacation. They can stop you. And they can not just only stop you, they can ban you for life if they decide to treat you like a member of a drug cartel. So I think the Canadian government is going to have to try to get some kind of an understanding with the Americans that uh, don't don't ask, don't tell, or look the other way, or nudge, nudge, because otherwise, um, it, I think it's going to have an impact on tourism to the United States, and I think it's going to have an impact on uh, people working in the industry, people... Um, a, a, associated with the industry in ways that might not have occurred to them uh, by working for a government department or uh, by, you know, this fellow in Edmonton who was a landlord down there of a building in Colorado where there was a dispensary, he gets banned for life from going to the United States. Yeah, it's ridiculous. I think we're far from done on that side of the story. Uh, Let's talk about the proportional representation referendum, uh, one that I think has been well off the radar, and I'm not terribly surprised by that, but... uh, 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 I was caught by the comments from the Premier this week who asked for British Columbians to take a quote-unquote leap of faith with him in voting. And uh, fair enough, but you have to think, you know, not every leap of faith ends well. Shannon? <laughs> That's for sure. I thought it was an interesting characterization for the Premier to use. Um, and it's certainly that phrasing has been brought forward by um, opponents of proportional representation pointing out, I think it was actually possibly the BC Liberal Caucus tweeted out a cartoon of somebody walking over the edge of a cliff with reference to proportional representation. Nonetheless, I do kind of feel like that's the way this referendum is shaking out. From what I'm seeing, there are people on both sides of the debate, those who want to keep the first past the post system and are sounding the alarm bells about potential issues with PR. And then those on the yes side are mostly, or many of them, I should say, seem to just feel like, let's do something different. Let's try something else. I don't really like the way first past the post works. These people are saying, I just want to try something else, and I'm not really even that concerned about what it is, which I think is also fed by the fact that a lot of people are put off about, yes, you know, we can change to a proportional representation system, but even if that's what you want, you then have to look at the three options that are on the table and try to figure out which one you're going to put in first place when you get your mail-in ballot um, later this fall. So I, I, I thought it was nice to see the government finally doing what it said it was going to do and champion proportional representation because they've done very little of that so far. Um, but it does strike me that it's 
maybe too little too late and maybe not the best and most confident phrasing to get people interested in the issue. Yeah, I was a little caught by surprise by the leap of faith comment. Keith? Yeah, it was uh, sort of a, a rather tepid uh, um, endorsation of, of proportional representation, which I think speaks to the fact that the NDP is not united on this issue. There are many New Democrats who do not want PR, notably Bill Tillman, a former uh, well, uh, NDP activist and former fundraiser for the party, is leading the no campaign against PR. So uh, Horgan, I think, is being a little careful. It's interesting, though, uh, he also signaled that, unlike in previous campaigns where no politician really championed the cause of of proportional representation when we had the previous referendums, he has signaled that he's prepared to campaign on it. And we've, we're, we're asking, we have yet to get an answer, of uh, how are they going to ensure that government resources aren't, tax dollars are not spent on, on championing the SI, because there are rules, there are spending rules in this campaign set down by elections BC, and the Horgan government has to be careful. They don't, they don't run, uh, they don't flaunt those, those rules. So, uh, using tax dollars to promote PR is uh, is a dicey situation for John Horgan. He can use his speech at the UBCM uh, to to you know raise the issue. It'll be interesting whether he uses other venues and platforms that he has in the weeks ahead to continue to to sort of beat the drum for PR because again there are ramifications uh, if any tax dollars are spent on this. Yeah, and it's not just the government of the day, uh, the opposition and even the Green Party, all three registering as third parties of elections BC. Uh, something that, uh, as, as Yvonne noted, it means a, a far more political tone to this electoral forum debate as compared to the previous two. Yeah, the 05 and the 09 uh, referendums, there were yes and no committees, and there was a, a broad range of debate. But because the party leaders didn't wade into it and didn't make it a test of loyalty to the party to go on one side or the other, the debate was less partisan. It was more about the system. And, and the other thing, of course, was in 05 and 09, you had an exact alternative system laid out there. You knew what was going to happen to local representation. You knew what STV was, and, and you could compare the two. The, the deviously clever thing to me about Horgan's leap of faith is he's asking you to take a leap of faith on proportional representation, and until the referendum passes, if it passes, you won't know what system you're going to get or how it's going to work because there are three alternatives on the ballot. You don't know which one people are going to pick. And also, David Eby has withheld key aspects of how those systems work to be decided by a legislature committee after the vote is over. And on that committee, there will be a majority of New Democrats and Greens. So you're not going to know how this system works. You really are taking a leap of faith because the people who want this, the New Democrats and the Greens, aren't going to tell you how it works until after the voting is over. Yeah, it's interesting stuff, and we'll keep uh, tabs on that story, guys. Let's take a quick break, uh, and we'll pick up uh, with the panel a couple of other issues as we finish off inside BC Poly right after this. Radio NL, RadioNL.com, local news now. Keeping you informed from both sides. For Kamloops Computer Center, this is Radio NL's Inside Politics with Shane Woodford. 
Well, welcome back. Thanks for tuning in. We're talking to Keith Baldry, Vaughn Palmer, and Shannon Waters. Uh, guys, LNG rearing its head again. We're sort of waiting for that final investment decision on the project near Kitimat. And then news this week, Steelhead LNG and its partners, Hawaii at First Nation, taking a pretty big step forward on a floating facility in Port Alberni, which is, uh, among other things, going to light a stick of dynamite and toss it into Andrew Weaver's lap. Vaughn? Yeah, this is a big one. Uh, the premier, in that speech to the UBCM, you know, he said we're not going to have a whole lot of goodies in the speech, and he didn't. But but he then <laughs> rolled out. He told the, uh, we're very very close to a final investment decision on liquefied natural gas LNG Canada in Kitimat. That's a thirty-six billion dollar project and a four tri- trillion. Uh, uh, sorry, billion and a four trillion dollar pipeline, a billion dollar pipeline. And I don't think the premier would have been as enthusiastic in the speech if he didn't think it's likely this thing is going to head. We are hearing a decision and probably favorable by the end of the month. Yeah. Uh, Keith, uh, an interesting issue because on one hand, the province desperately needs that revenue and the economic boost. On the other, uh, it's definitely going to perhaps drive a bit of a fracture in the alliance that's keeping them into power as uh, Mr. Weaver has again barked on LNG. The question now is, will he bite? Oh, this is going to be fascinating, Shane. I think this is the make-or-break issue for the Greens and the NDP. Andrew Weaver's built his entire career on, on climate change, on climate science. He says he can't square the emissions, that, the, emission, the increase in emissions, greenhouse gas emissions that would arise from an LNG project with meeting the province's uh, emission reduction targets. Uh, the NDP will echo the, the uh, argument made by the B.C. Liberals that they used to ridicule in that B.C.'s LNG will replace China's coal and that, therefore, that should count as a net reduction in emissions. But it's going to be a fascinating uh, sort of uh, brinksmanship uh, debate between Weaver and the NDP over whether or not he withdraws support from the NDP over this issue. It's unclear when he could do that. Uh, there's no confidence vote scheduled until the budget vote next March. Uh, and at that point, he could theoretically withdraw support. I'm not, but the other little wrinkle here is I'm not convinced that he could force and require uh, his fellow Green MLAs, notably Sonia Furstenau, to join him in defeating the NDP government. The last thing she wants is any chance of a BC Liberal government uh, making a stand again. So uh, it's a fascinating uh, debate about that is about to occur. I agree with Vaughn. All signs point to yes, this thing is going to be a go in Kitimat, LNG Canada, more than likely to get the the green light on the final investment decision I'm hearing as early as October 1st and then we're off to the races it's a huge investment a record private sector investment in BC but it has enormous political uh, implications and we don't know what the outcome of that, those implications are going to be yeah and it provides another contrast too as the Horgan government opposes the Trans Mountain Pipeline for among other things uh, negative impacts to British Columbia and its environments but yet seems to be gung-ho for LNG who Andrew Weaver will tell you is negative impacts to the environment shannon yeah and that's something that you know weaver has brought up multiple times obviously he's opposed to the pipeline as well i think sort of maybe the potential escape hatch here for weaver with this stick of dynamite as you put it is going to be the province's climate action plan which is supposed to be coming this fall um they've been working on this for a while it's been brought up several times that the impact of an lng industry will be worked into the province's climate plan will be accounted for and mitigated there and so potentially depending on what we see weaver could 
still say he's sticking to his guns and opposing LNG, but say that the government has sort of adequately addressed the environmental impact and the concerns around industry with its climate plan, and therefore he can sort of grudgingly go along with it. So that's something else that I think we're going to be looking for when we go back into the legislature next week. Yeah, I still think... Next week, week after that. Yeah, uh, I still think if he does that, though, he's going to have to eat a lot of crow in order to uh, sort of uh, table his position, for sure. Uh, Guys, uh, Andrew Wilkinson was on the show last week, and on this issue, the speculation tax, which is one that's nibbling away at the heels of this government, uh, said that he's willing to work with Andrew Weaver, but, uh, you know, he's got a hand extended, but uh, he's not having anyone on the other side of the table will reach out as far as the greens go i talked to andrew weaver he says listen we're trying to work with the liberals but they're not playing ball they're all about politics all the time yada 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 but says hey i will vote with the bc liberals if a situation should occur to amend the speculation tax obviously a lot of politics at play here vaughn uh what can we read into this situation as far as uh, what each of those parties may or may not do they really love each other, those two parties. <laughs> they don't trust each other at all. I, the only practical way for them to proceed that I can see, unless the government backs down on the tax, and I suppose they might, is to let the government table the legislation when the House sits in October, then let the two parties table their proposed amendments. Uh, once the texts are there on the record, they should be able to get an agreement on which ones they're going to vote for and which ones they're going to vote against. And then the government sees the amendments. They may decide to take the amendments rather than see their bill uh, you know, essentially defeated or, or watered down in ways they don't want. There's still room for the three parties to work this out. Uh, at the moment, they all seem to be playing a variation of Brink's personship. Yeah, no, agreed. Uh, Keith, any, any way that you could see the Greens voting with the Liberals on an amendment to the speculation tax? Andrew Weaver has said in the past he would on an issue-by-issue basis, obviously not in a confidence issue, but on other matters. He has yet to actually do that, though. I think, back to PR, they want proportional representation, and they want to show, or they need to show how parties can work together, because that's what would be required under under PR. You'd have, have much more sort of problem sharing of policies involving a number of, par- of parties. So here's a classic example of the need to work together to bring in proper legislation. But uh, as Vaughn says, these two, these two sides don't like each other at all. Uh, and uh, the initial read I got from the Liberals is, well, I don't want, we want nothing to do with this with Weaver. So Weaver will bring in some amendments uh, to the bill. Uh, the Liberals will bring in their amendments, and they'll be strikingly similar. I mean, Weaver wants the ability for individual municipalities to opt in or out of having the speculation tax take uh, place within their the municipal boundaries. That's presumably one of the, the amendments. Uh, and both all the amendments will serve the chief purpose of watering the, the speculation tax down to the point of almost being uh, unenforceable or meaningless. But uh, it's still a bit of a stretch to see these two parties actually working together to, to defeat or to amend a piece of legislation when neither side wants anything to do with each other. Shannon, concur? Yeah, I do think that there seems to be just a lot of animosity between the Greens and the Liberals, um, and that they they often sort of talk past each other. They're they're sometimes going for the same sort of outcome or are opposed to something that the government's doing, but they just like oil and water they do not want to work with each other i'm really interested to see what happens with the speculation tax i think one of the things that's been missing from the discussion since the ubcm and the mayor's open letter um calling for the 
the speculation tax to be junk is that there's a lot of people in this province who do support bringing in the speculation tax. There's a June poll, I think it was done by Research Co. Three, uh, two-thirds of people think that the tax is completely fair and that it's needed in this province. And housing availability and affordability are certainly shaping up to be big issues in the municipal elections coming up. So I think it'll be interesting to see when the legislation actually comes through and the parties start talking about it, what the public reaction is like and whether that sort of maybe changes the conversation a little bit. I do feel that uh, Andrew Weaver may have had some pressure from his constituents to sort of ramp up his opposition to um, to the speculation tax. Oak Bay Gordon Head is a very um, wealthy community within sort of the capital regional district, and I'm guessing a lot of those people would be hit by the speculation tax. Yeah, I, I would attribute some of that support to people who just want some action on the housing crisis and are just seeing the word speculation tax without really knowing how it works so much. I think people were just desperate for some kind of movement on that crisis. But anyway, uh, we're out of time. Uh, Keith Von Shannon, always a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thanks, Shane. There we go. Shannon Waters, Keith Baldry, and Von Palmer. We'll take a quick break here on Inside Politics. On the other side, a chat with Andrew Weaver, responding to Mr. Andrew Wilkinson, who was on the program last week. Local News Now, Radio NL, 610 AM and RadioNL.com. Could the speculation tax turn bark into bite? Everybody wants to know, and we might find out soon. Had a chance to connect with the leader of the BC Green Party on Inside Politics, Andrew Weaver. As I'm sure you've heard, Mr. Wilkinson is is playing the angle that uh, uh, he'd love to work with you guys, but there's no communication. You're not reaching out to him. He's operating in a void, and uh, his hand extended, but yours is not. Uh, What's your take on that? That's ironic in light of the fact that one of the first things I did as leader of the BC Greens uh, and after he was elected leader of the BC Liberals, was sent him a letter saying how much we want to work to, uh, collaboratively because we believe that good public policy evolves when people bring their best ideas to the table and we collectively find the uh, commonality to ensure that we can support each other's best ideas. Uh, I have not had a response to that letter, to be honest. I, I have, We asked specifically in that letter, or, um, couple of things. We asked that, you know, we asked the courtesy. If the BC Liberals would like our support on amendments, and we'd like to support them, please do one of two things. Number one is give us some advance notice. It's really not uh, acceptable to, on the floor, pop an amendment forward and, 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 and expect us to pass it without putting it on the order papers to give us the, the written notice of what's coming so that we can reflect upon what that amendment means i.e. in terms of, number one, things like how it would affect our constituents and broader society, and number two, whether or not there are issues and and conflicting issues that we might have and questions we might raise about it. Uh, The second thing we ask is that you please use legislative drafters. We have, for the first time as opposition parties, access to legislative drafters. We can have have, um, amendments passed that are legally written to ensure that all other statutes have been examined, etc., etc., to just write something or and present it on the floor with no minutes notice, may, you know, it's 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 good for policy debates. No question, you can have good debates. It's not good to pass for public policy because, in the end, you could create law that could be inconsistent with other laws, and you can create more problems than good. Never had a response, uh, so we're we're very surprised that they would say that. We're, we'd be delighted to work together, and you know, I I um, I. I did so with the former government for many years. 
So in your mind, Andrew, this is sort of political posturing. They're 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 trying to put you in the in the worst light possible and, and position themselves in the eyes of the electorate. Is that more or less what you think is going on here? It's pretty clear to me that what's going on here is that uh, the BC Liberals are, are are in this quest for power and not in a quest for advancing good public policy. Because, you know, the BC Liberals, it's about power. It's not about public policy. I got into politics. All these Adam and Sonia got in to advance good public policy. We would do that no matter who's in government, and we've written and asked to work with the BC NDP um, and the BC Liberals, and we have a confidence and supply agreement with the NDP. We tried to establish with the BC Liberals. They're not interested, and, and it, it's so much so that there are examples that I could give where we, we see the, the BC Liberals actually doing what they can to ensure that, that, that our views not only are, 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 are not supported, but are not even vented at the legislative floor. You know, shenanigans in terms of uh, uh, cutting down debate early when somebody's not there in order to pass things through, whether it be in budget estimates or in, in, in the water session, things like, you know, not ensuring that we can't do our jobs as effectively as we should be able to. You know, two examples, my colleague Adam Olson once wanted to attend a funeral of a, of a great um, Songhees leader and, and a relative of his, uh, as the, both as our indigenous critic as, as well as, as a family member. And he went to the um, house leader, the, the uh, indigenous critic of the BC Liberals, and asked if he would join him at this. And they, would, they could pair, and they, in the so-called pairing system, common in parliament, Western, parliamentary democracy, Western parliaments, they would both go, and they know, would know that if a vote were to happen, the fact that they're both there would not cause government to, a vote to go against government. Uh, and, of course, the House leader said, no, we're not going to do pairing. Same thing happened to me. I was invited to make some key, some key presentations at a, at a major international tech uh, conference, as well as to participate in that conference and meet with leaders, worldwide tech leaders. I wanted to pair up with the BC Liberal critic. We could have done this together, but the answer was no, because it's about politics. It's about the game. It's not about collaboration. It's not about cooperation. It's not about public policy for the BC. And that is precisely the reason why they're sitting stewing in a timeout, because they have yet to recognize that the British Columbia public want them to actually work with other people to advance good public policy, not to advance their singular quest for power, but to actually put good public policy front and center in their decision making and their and 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 and, and, and what they you know were elected to do. So let me just ask you this point blank, Andrew. If, if you could find some common ground with the Liberals and some tweak or amendment to the speculation tax, for example, would you vote with them? Absolutely, absolutely. And, and uh, not only that, I have told the, I, there, there's two things that can happen with the speculation tax. Number one, uh, it, can, it can be brought in in a manner that I could support. Uh, number two, it can be brought in a manner that I could not support, but I could turn into a manner that the BC Liberals and I could support. Now, now in the, let's go to the former, very first one. There are two components of the spec tax. The first component is really uh, what's called a vacant, it's a vacancy tax targeting empty homes. Now, what I support 100% is the amendment that was, or is the, is the uh, resolution that was brought and passed unanimously at UBCM by the municipality of Oak Bay, brought my, in my writing, brought to the, the legislature and supported by municipality of Langford and amended there, is to allow individual local governments 
to determine whether or not a vacancy tax should be in their jurisdiction. Give them the powers implement it or to, to, to opt out. Give, let the money stay locally and target that, not only um, uh, based on, 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 on the knowledge they have of the local communities. I can support that. Now, I know that the city of Victoria asked the province and UBCM also in a former resolution asked the province to enable governments to implement a vacancy tax. I actually have that legislation drafted. I went through the process. I gave that legislation to the BCNDP. I'm, I'd be delighted to give that legislation. That legislation basically does what was done in the Vancouver Charter, which is to allow local governments to, oh, in the case of the Vancouver Charter, the Vancouver government to implement a vacancy tax. Vancouver wanted it. They did it. Victoria wants it. Let them do it if they want it. But do not impose this on jurisdictions when you don't understand the secondary ramifications of those jurisdictions. Like in Kelowna, it's outrageous that going forward in places like West Kelowna, in, in, in broader areas around Greater Victoria. It's, uh, in Nanaimo, it's not dealing with speculation. It's actually targeting you know, people who one reason or another, have end up having another uh, place that they, for very good, very often, reasons that you and I have don't understand, we understand when we ask them, they use it for certain services. Now I'll come to the second aspect of the spec text. This is what I support. I have the legislation to enable local governments to enable a vacancy tax if they wish it. That's written, it's ready, it's been given to the NDP. I said this is what I could. Support. What also can be done is the speculation tax has a secondary component. That is targeting satellite families. Those people who um, uh, don't even live here um, they may have a home. It may be vacant. It may be they uh, uh, have a, a, a student living in it. Maybe a multi-million dollar mansion. It may have a spouse living in it. It's offshore money. I have, a, I have no problem going after those and, and recognizing that there is a tax that needs to be applied to pay for the social costs that have arisen because people are using our, our, our education systems, they're using our healthcare systems, they're using our social services, and they're not paying for that because their income is being declared elsewhere. They're declaring little or no taxable income in Canada, and yet they could, might be sitting in a multi-million dollar home. And I know I have the support of of West Vancouver and other uh, jurisdictions in actually in, in, in supporting that because Vancouver has 1,700 empty homes. They're not 1,700 people from, you know, Victoria who happen to have a, a, a home in West Vancouver that they're leaving vacant just for the heck of it. The money is offshore. Those homes are vacant. Have a student come in every now and again, and those are speculative houses. We have no problem supporting that. So if you split the two parts of the speculation tax, one vacancy tax Hacking Canadians, don't do it. Uh, final question on this topic, Andrew. If, if Let's take the BC Liberals out of the equation. Uh, if you have issues with the speculation tax, is there any way that you can or any leverage that you have to force those changes? Uh, well, the best, you know, in collaboration, collaboration, in my view, is you come to terms with bring forward ideas that you can all support. I see a very real way forward here where the BC NDP have listened. The BC Liberals have not proposed a singular solution to this. And, and I could see where the BC NDP bring forward something that I can support in light of what I just articulated. I could see them bringing in something I can't support, but that could support with the support of the Liberals. There is a way forward. Mr. Wilkinson has said that he's offered his solution. 
I don't think people have read his solution, but it's half-baked. His solution was basically to require people who they'll flip a condo to report 50% of the profit on their tax. Well, to be blunt, you should be reporting that anyway. And why 50% and why not 100%? Like, this is, this is the kind of BC liberal cynicism here, is they claim they proposed their solution. Anybody who's got 15 minutes, go on the website, look up their solution, which was in, in this year's legislative private members bill, and you'll see just how flaky it is. 50% of a flipping profit that you got is to be reported on your income tax. You should be doing that anyway. It's a, it's a net capital gain, and you're not, if you're not reporting it, why aren't you reporting it? <laughs> it this, is, this, this is the BC Liberal games in action. Uh, slightly different vein here, but uh, uh, I know Carol James has said this renter's rebate uh, that you guys don't like is, uh, is not out of action. It's sitting on the bench, and in fact will make its presence felt someday. Your opinion on that? Yeah, so with the, we, we have been very clear along the lines that we have shared goals here with the BC NDP. What that is, is to uh, help renters. Now, the question I have asked is this. Does giving them $400 actually help them? Well, at the first glance, you might say, oh, yeah, it does. Then me, I'll, the second question I ask is this. Does an increase of 4.5% this year help them? And the answer is very clearly So. In our view, it would be better served, and rather than giving $400 to each renter, whether they need it or not, is to do two things. Uh, because I would argue that the, the former is nothing more than simply a subsidy to, to landlords. Uh, the money flows through the renter to the rent landlord. What I would argue is two things, number two, be done. One, there needs to be an injection into the two existing programs, the SAFER program, rental support for seniors, and the, uh, low, the, the lower income rental support supplement program. Both of those recently did have an injection of funds. We pushed hard for that into, uh, into the discussions leading up to the budget submission, budget 2018. They were announced on August the 30th. Very pleased with that. Second thing that needs to be done is you need to take a good hard look at that, that formula, which is that the annual rental increases are 2% plus, plus a rate of inflation. That's 4.5% this year, last year. That's a heck of a lot of an increase in two years. And other jurisdictions like Ontario and Manitoba, Quebec, Ontario and Manitoba allowed 1.8%. And I can tell you, when you roll the numbers through and you look at what, whether a renter would be better forward by getting 400 bucks, or whether that 0.5% might be better you know, brought in line with cost of living as opposed to you know, rent rates that are going up, they're way better ahead with the approach Greens uh, will push for, which is to uh, look at the, the increase, allowable increase, rather than hand out $400 each. And at the same time, you're saving $200 million, which would be better used in terms of affordable housing. So the reality is here, uh, this, is, uh, uh, this is what the BC Greens have been pushing for for many, many months. And, and I believe that, um, you know, rather than saying you're not delivering on a $400 promise, in good collaboration, what we're seeing here BC NDP are reflecting upon it and saying, you know what, we don't have all the ideas. Some ideas maybe we hadn't thought through. And it's okay for us to think about this a little more carefully and perhaps do something that is even better for renters. And we, renters win in the long run by the good policy as opposed to, you know, um, you know, 
catchy election slogans which were made um, to try to win or win or win, win the last provincial election. That was BC Green Party leader Andrew Weaver. And that's it for today's edition of Inside Politics. My thanks also to Mike Farnworth who called in, BC's Public Safety Minister. We'll see you again here on Radio NL next week. 1230 Merritt, 1340 Ashcroft Cash Creek, from CHNL in Kamloops. This is Radio NL, 610 AM, local news now.